What's up, everybody? I am Justin Murphy, and this is Other Life. Today, we're going to be talking about the life and times of the great 18th century English critic, Dr. Samuel Johnson. This is one of the greatest figures in the history of all English letters. And did you know, I bet you didn't, that he wrote what we would basically today call a paid newsletter. <laughs> it's basically a paid Substack, a few hundred years before Substack. This was in the 18th century, so born in the early 1700s. You often imagine that people back in this time, you know, they had patrons and kings and all, all these kinds of uh, sources of support. But he was actually living and working at a time when that kind of old school patronage was on the decline. He actually never had any patronage. He spent his entire life hustling, uh, spent most of his life in poverty, actually, with no official donors or patrons. And he basically had to be creative with how he earned money as a reader, a writer, a thinker, and so on. So I was just blown away by this and I wanted to share with you all. I want to kind of tell this story because I think a lot of people don't know about it. And I think it's, I think there are a lot of useful lessons here. He was extremely free and independent. And to me, that's what makes him most interesting. He would, uh, as I said, become one of the most influential English critics ever. He didn't have any form of institutional independence. He was a truly self-made writer, a self-reliant kind of independent hustler. Hey everybody, this is just a quick interruption to invite you to the new Other Life community. We are now really moving in the direction of a network state. It's pretty crazy. We will give you a fully fledged personal server and a special desktop application from our partners at the Hollywood Company, which will let you and all of the members in the community compute together on the peer-to-peer sensor-proof Urbit network. It's still early, but it's insanely cool. If you're into the other life ethos, like if you're a writer or a software developer or whatever, if you're all about freedom and self-reliance outside of institutions, then we want to meet you. The community is now totally free to join. We have other ways now of filtering and sorting people later based on their abilities. It's kind of like the USA of the 1840s. Anyone could get on a ship and go to America, but only some would rise the ranks depending on what they were able to do. To join, just go to otherlife.co forward slash join. That's otherlife.co forward slash join. Samuel Johnson. Like I said, he was born in 1709. And growing up, he was, he had a lot of the traits that you might expect to see in an independent writer. Uh, his biographers note that he showed signs of strength, uh, kind of strong spirit, but also mixed with awkwardness. He was a kind man, but he was also irritable. So he had all these kind of unsavory personality quirks that just made him not very good at navigating normal institutional society. But of course, he was an avid reader. He devoured books from his father's collection. This is something you see across the board of the biographies of of, of the great, you know, wild and independent writers. They almost always, from some kind of early age, have some sort of deep connection and relationship with books, obviously. Johnson's life it took a little bit of a turn when he did go to Oxford and and this was made possible by a wealthy neighbor who basically helped him enroll. He didn't really do so well though in Oxford. He didn't really fit in. He he had a kind of shabby appearance and he never had his own money. So he was always a bit of an outsider. The hoity-toity always have a way of knowing when someone is an intruder. And if you don't come for money and you don't have money, you're always going to be an outsider in certain types of circles. And that was very much the case for him. He was a bit of a wild card, basically. He didn't really fit in, but through his wit and knowledge, he was able to earn himself some slack. He did make some friends and he, and he did have some success at Oxford, but he did leave without a degree. When he left Oxford, he found himself struggling with poverty and he would struggle with poverty for the next 30 years. So pretty much all of his adult life, he barely made ends meet. He lived paycheck to paycheck and really struggled. 
nonetheless, he managed to spend an entire life dedicated to reading, thinking, writing, and to great success, to extraordinary success, really. He was a hypochondriac, and he had a lot of odd behaviors, as I alluded to before. Uh, he wasn't the most handsome guy either. He's a little heavyset, is my understanding. He, he had a famous penchant for conversation in his uh, famous biography written about him by his friend, John Boswell, The Life of Johnson. You know, this is something that comes through very strongly. He was extraordinarily articulate and charming in the way that he, you know, could say certain sentences and make certain points. He, he was very good in that regard, but he was also, like I said, awkward, a little off-putting. You know, he apparently ate like a savage. This is something that the biographers talk about. You couldn't really bring him to polite company. He would grab food aggressively and kind of shovel it down. These types of behaviors. This is what you have to imagine when you think about him. He did make some attempts to publish poems immediately coming out of Oxford, but they all fell flat. They were not published, uh, or if they were published, no one really cared. He got married. He claims that his marriage pushed him to work harder. He really wanted to kind of earn fame and fortune for his wife, who who he loved very much. He wanted to make her proud. So in this case, different writers say different things and different biographies look a little different depending on the you know how things play out regarding whether or not the, the spouse kind of adds or detracts from the person's creativity and output. In this case, it seems like uh, his wife had, had a salutary effect on his output and, and drive. But sadly, these nervous tics and this kind of off-putting personality that I described before cost him job opportunities. He really, for a while, would have looked from the outside like a loser, essentially. He uh, tried to get some jobs, had some opportunities, but he was always kind of failing and not really being able to pay the bills reliably. He goes to London at the age 28. Johnson went there to try to make it as a writer. He had almost no money, but he did have a play. He wrote his first play and he went to London to try to sell it. He had some letters of introduction from his friend, Wal Mesley, and that was his attempt to kind of break into the to the literary scene there. But it was a very difficult time. And London at this period was, it was a very, very hard to make it, quote unquote, financially as a writer. The only real financially comfortable writer at the time was Alexander Pope, but he was kind of in, you know, in a different stratosphere. Like I said, Johnson, he was ill-mannered, he was unkempt, he was he was gluttonous, but this determination that he had was able to override all of his social faux pas. Even though he was mocked and generally disliked in whatever London literary society he was able to make his way into in the early days, it was really his persistence and his determination that got him through and that made up for all of that. So I think that alone is a, is a good lesson, an interesting lesson, is that no matter how down and out you feel, even if you feel like everyone hates you or no one's paying attention to you whatsoever, you're nobody, that kind of discouragement you might feel sometimes. True self-confidence and persistence and just putting in the work over and over again, year after year, is really enough to override any lack of, of social grace or, or social opinion. After Johnson's tough first year in London, he wrote a poem called London, and that was anonymously published in May of 1738. And that poem was actually his first big hit. It sold well. And it even gained critical acclaim, even from someone like Alexander Pope. Alexander Pope praised it publicly and predicted that the author would not remain a mystery for very long. That was kind of his first light in a way, his first big break, I guess you could call it. But even then, it didn't materialize into money or power of any kind. It was it was probably great for his confidence and uh, gave him some motivation to keep going, but it in no way turned into cash. And a year after his piece called Irene, Johnson uh, started publishing essays on morals and manners and literature. And so this is where I think I'm personally most interested in his story, because it's in March 1750 that he launches what is often called a magazine. 
Okay, it was called the Rambler. While some today are inclined to call that a magazine, that's often how it's described. If you look at the Wikipedia, if you look at you know biographies or even popular culture, there's some awareness of the Rambler as an old magazine. In fact, I think there's currently a magazine, a little literary magazine called the Rambler, which is not the same. There's no continuity, but it's just kind of trafficking in the same name. But to call it a magazine is misleading. It's crucially misleading, I think. The Rambler was much more like a paid newsletter. And this is what I find so fascinating because Johnson wrote, if you look back at the whole archive of it, Johnson wrote almost all of the 208 essays published in The Rambler over two years. He wrote them all himself. Magazine makes you think of a kind of multi-contributor situation where there's an editor, there's solicitation of all kinds of authors submitting different pieces, and then the editor piecing it together. And that's not what this was. This was overwhelmingly a one-man operation. He just occasionally had friends or colleagues submit pieces. Over the course of two years, like I said, 208 essays, and they were mostly on moral, social, and kind of philosophical issues. A lot about character and how to think about things. And it really, in terms of content, also was very much akin to the types of stuff you might see in various newsletters today. I don't think many people appreciate this. This was obviously before the, di the digital revolution. So he was mailing these out to paid subscribers in, in the post. And if you look back at the numbers, it's really quite interesting. So the Rambler had a circulation of about 500 copies per issue. And that means uh, Johnson earned about two pounds sterling per essay. And if you do the inflation adjustment and the currency conversion, that turns out, according to my numbers, turns out to about $400 in today's dollars. That means it's about $800 per week in today's dollars or $3,200 a month in today's dollars. And so according to my calculations, Samuel Johnson earned around $90,000 in today's dollars over the course of this two-year project. He, it was basically a moderately successful Substack. Like he wasn't crushing it. You know, he wasn't what making nearly as much as the top Substacks are today, but it's also not trivial either. And, you know, back in that time, I'm sure that was enough to get by basically, but he wasn't rich. You know, this is what I think is interesting and, and kind of compelling about this part of the story. He was paying the bills because he was a hustler and he did what he had to do to make money with his vocation, his call to, to being a writer, to being a thinker and a writer, but he wasn't necessarily wealthy and he just had to kind of be creative, innovative and use logic and hard work and hustle to figure out what would be a system that could pay the bills and that would require him to do the types of work that he he believes in. And if you go back and look at the Rambler, you can find the whole archive online, of course. It's really cool stuff. It's really, really interesting, thoughtful stuff. It's it's fun. These are kind of short. They're basically blog posts. They're, you know, they're short pieces about interesting topics. It often has to do with cultivating character and a lot about reading and uh, kind of literary criticism. And they're extremely erudite, you know, kind of filled with Latin phrases and quotes and stuff like that. It's just sophisticated, thoughtful, but short, interesting, punchy aphorisms and short essays. Yeah, I think it's really cool that he, at a time when it was not particularly easy, pretty much did this all by himself. After that, and this is one of the projects he's most famous for, he put together at someone else's commission, one of the first significant comprehensive English dictionaries in, in the modern sense. That's something that, that he worked on. So this guy, as you can kind of start to understand, was a true kind of literary infovore and, and master of the English language. There was this episode where a noble tried to kind of win Johnson's favor and courted Johnson as possibly entering into a kind of donor patron relationship. And back then at this time, basically good writers who had some prestige and some some fame. You, like I said, Johnson was not rich at all. He was struggling to get by more or less, but he was read by just the circle of people who matter. Though the circulation wasn't huge, 
it was a powerful circulation. And this is another really important lesson, I think, in his life is that if you're a really thoughtful person and you do work that is really sophisticated and erudite, you're never going to have 100,000 active readers. For the most part, there's not going to be a massive popular base for that type of work simply because that's the nature of doing particularly sophisticated work. Only a minority of people have what it takes to even understand what you're saying, let alone care about it or value it. That's something important to, to remember if you're a thinker or a writer and you're trying to do something a little bit more sophisticated or ambitious than the run-of-the-mill daily newsletter. You only really need to have a small number of elite actors reading your work and admiring it and paying attention to it for you to already be in the upper echelons, more or less, of the literary class, if you will. And this is a really good example, because the way things worked back then was he was respected by a relatively small number of elite men. And because of this, nobles just wanted to be associated with him. And then this is how patronage used to work. This was the implicit patronage model. This is something people don't really understand nowadays, is that it's a trade that if a rich person is giving you money because of your literary work, it's not purely a gift. It's a trade. That person wants to be associated with you because you're respected, because you're doing amazing work and because your name has cultural capital. So it's an exchange of financial capital and cultural capital. When Johnson you know, has some success and has some recognition, but not a lot of money, that's when the nobles come out of the woodwork. And this one noble, Lord Chesterfield, basically wanted to be Johnson's patron. But Johnson said no. And the reason is interesting. The reason is because earlier in his life, Johnson did try to court patrons. And Lord Chesterfield was one of the patrons that he tried to court. So he did put effort into building a relationship with Chesterfield. But several years before, Chesterfield kind of ghosted him. Chesterfield showed some interest, but then didn't want to didn't want to give anything. Johnson's pride was hurt by this. I think his ego was hurt by this. And rightfully so. I think a lot of great writers are kind of proud people at the end of the day. They are fierce and driven and independently minded. They have a kind of attitude where... They often have a chip on their shoulder and they're they're trying to kind of prove the world wrong. This is often the case, I think, with, with great spirits and great writers. So I think when Johnson tried to court Lord Chesterfield earlier in his life and Chesterfield flirted with the idea but then ghosted, Johnson said, you know what? Forget it. Forget this patron thing. I'm not going to live this kind of mentality. I'm not going to even bother with this way of thinking because it makes me feel small and kind of pathetic and, and submissive and obsequious. Only after Johnson gained some prestige and name recognition... Lord Chesterfield basically wants to become Johnson's uh, patron. And Johnson now ghosts Lord Chesterfield. He gives him the cold shoulder. And I think that's really interesting and and kind of cool, frankly. Uh, the dictionary was finally published without a dedication. Chesterfield was basically angling for him to be the dedication. And that's kind of one of the ways that the the patron relationship worked back in the, back in the day. It was like, I'll give you money to support your work. But then you're going to publicly say, thank you, Lord Chesterfield. You made this possible. Johnson declined. And the dictionary was kind of pridefully published without a dedication at all. The preface actually kind of dunked on uh, Chesterfield in a way, as implicitly. It was, it, was, it was a subtweet, if you will. The preface explained Johnson's hardships and how hard it was to get the thing done, how much he struggled with poverty, basically, through all the years of getting this epic project finished. And apparently even some of his haters claimed later to have shed tears when they read that preface. So it was his, you know, kind of middle finger up at the world that never gave him anything, but he pursued, you know, his work anyway, accomplished something great and really took a victory lap to say, I don't need you all. I did it myself. Finally, in 1762, the government promised a pension of 300 pounds a year. This was the government basically saying, you're a great figure in our culture. 
you've done amazing work. You should not have to struggle to survive anymore. So this was another common way that great writers back in the day would be able to live with a bit of dignity. The government would basically just give money to notable figures. It took him his entire life to get this little bit of guaranteed financial security. Though he did enjoy this bit of financial security at the end of his life, the point is he spent his entire life hustling, making his own money, making his own way to, to do the work that he believed in as much as possible full time. And he just had to be creative with how it earned him money. But once he gets this pension, that allows him to enjoy a more leisurely life. But it makes him lazy, actually. You know, this is one of the reasons why actually, you know, patronage and government support are really not always good things. You don't necessarily want them, even if, you know, it would make your life a little less stressful. Because once he got this pension, he really didn't put out much work. He had promised an edition of Shakespeare to subscribers. This was another way you could make money, basically, back in the day, is you could do a, a specific work and offer it on subscription. That's what he did. He said, I'm going to I'm gonna do this new edition of Shakespeare. He went around, sold subscriptions in advance so that he could do the work. Then he got this pension, and all of a sudden, he had no energy to actually deliver the edition of Shakespeare. But he was on the hook for it because people paid for it. He starts getting some accusations in the public press. People are calling him a grifter. They didn't use that term. But it's very similar to what you see today, where it's like, if someone is making good money as a kind of independent creator, and there's any perception that they're being a little lazy or failing to deliver or behind schedule on things that people paid for, you know, they're get, they get called a grifter or what have you. And uh, it's the same exact thing uh, back then, basically. There was this one guy in particular who published a long essay publicly about being angry at Johnson for pretty much scamming people. He was accused of scamming because he sold this subscription and, and took many years to deliver. It looked like at a certain point that maybe he would never deliver and he was just a dishonest actor. Because he felt a lot of shame about that and because he was called out, he was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta deliver. And so he did get his act together and he did eventually publish the Shakespeare that was promised. Uh, he published it in 1765, if I recall. In his final years, Johnson, he battled asthma and dropsy and other kind of medical conditions. And he generally refused his doctor's advice. I think this is another uh, sort of common pattern among strong-willed creative men you know who wants to listen to the doctor who wants to even go to the doctor and if the doctor says you have to do x y or z to live eh, that's just kind of oppressive and who wants to submit to that i'd rather just die freely he considered traveling to a warmer climate but he didn't want to use his savings he, he was so frugal and used to such a life of pinching pennies that he wouldn't even go to a warmer climate all the country's most eminent physicians and surgeons offered to care for him for free refusing payment but at the end it was unavoidable. He died and he had a clear mind is what his biographer said. He faced the end with composure. He died at the time, one of the greatest living figures in, in all of the history of English letters. He died on December 13th, 1784 at the age of 75. He passed away and a week later, he was laid to rest in Westminster Abbey, not very, not very far actually from many of the great men that he analyzed and chronicled throughout his life. He also wrote biographies as well. He wrote every type of genre under the sun, it seems. There you have it. That's the life of Johnson. I think it's an incredible journey from a life of hardship to becoming one of the most renowned figures in English literature. I think the story reminds us of the importance of perseverance, uh, self-reliance, having to just you know do whatever it takes to do the work that you believe in. If you simply are able to do that over a long enough time span and you really have something to say, his story really shows you that it's impossible to not eventually succeed. Thank you for listening. As always, subscribe on the YouTube channel and or the podcast feed, however you prefer to follow along with, uh, you know, these, these stories I like to tell sometimes. So thank you very much. I'm Justin Murphy. This is Other Life. I will see you next time.